Initially, it was just complete disbelief. I thought it was all part of a big elaborate hoax. It's a real good case study in um, going and going and going again, right? And I was just so happy for him because I know how much this had meant to him and how much work had gone into it. Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Pilot Podcast. Yes, it is me, James Stewart, doing the introduction this week because Paul is on the other side of the microphone being interviewed as part of this week's show. We um, have just finished our first series of our sprints and we have been blown away by the response to that. But as we are in production for the next series, I'm sure you're all excited to hear, Paul and I just wanted to drop a wee podcast into your feed and it's with John Connolly, recent finisher of the Western States 100. He's going to tell us about his race before, after, enduring, maybe not necessarily in that order. And we'll also hear Paul talking about it as a three times top 10 finisher at Western States, what it was like to be on the other side of the crewing this time round as well. So I hope you're all excited to listen to this week's show. And without further ado, we'll introduce you to the guys on this podcast. So hello, John. How you doing? You alright, James? How you doing, Paul? Good to see you. And you, and you. It's been a while since you two have been together, eh? I mean, I've seen it on social media, John. You've been um, you've been prolific on social media since um, Western States. You've got to keep milking that, and I guess we'll talk a wee bit about that as well. Because um, as we talk about Western States itself as a race, for those who don't know, it's pretty much regarded as the the premier hundred mile ultra marathon in the world, or at least one of the the pioneer hundred mile marathon um, ultra marathons. But that's not necessarily true if you look at the history. But it certainly is the big dance when it comes to fast running hundred milers. And it is a dream of many ultra runners, myself included. And I have entered before and I haven't got through the draw, he says, looking at John, um, to run in that particular race. So, John, let's start with, how did you feel back in November, I think it would have been, when your name came out of the hat with your, your one ticket? Um, I think initially it was just complete disbelief. I thought it was all part of a big elaborate hoax. <laughs> um, I got a phone call for Derek Fish, screaming screaming all sort of obscenities down the phone at me um and then kind of ended the conversation with him still sitting down saying he's full of shit he's at it this is just a big wind up and then phoned up graham and i was basically kind of tentatively sounding him out to see if i could uh, spy any cracks in his voice or anything like that that would maybe allude to the fact that it was all just a big piss take and he he was just sitting there in his bath going, I don't know what you're talking about. I've absolutely no idea. Oh, that's great. You've been drawn out of the hat. And then there was a couple of people posted some things up on social media about me getting pulled out of the hat, but still there was an element of disbelief there. I thought they were all in on the hoax as well. And then about three hours later, I got the email and I was like, shit. Phew. <laughs> <laughs> right. so, what, what's that? What's unusual there, John, is is most people would um would watch a live feed in anticipation, right? But you've given me one ticket, and I guess you're starting to think, let's accrue some tickets so I've got a better chance further out. But I'll throw my name in the hat anyway. So you weren't watching the live feed. What were you doing when you got the phone call they from Derek? Training plans. Sitting <laughs> right now, training plans. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, shit, I'm a couple of hours behind today. I need to get them done. 
Uh, aye, I was just sitting writing out training plans. It was weird because I think it was such a strange thing entering the race because me and Paul had had a bit of a weird conversation the night or two nights before I actually put my name in the hat. And we were talking about the likes of Derek's chances and Debbie's chances, like getting their name pulled out the hat and like the amount of entries that they've got a percentage perspective, you would be sitting going right there and we're a good chance. I think one of them was just about 50%, the other one's about 65% or something like that. And me and Paul are having a chat about that and obviously that's where the whole one-ticket wanker thing originated. Paul said to me, he's like, John, it's just going to be some wanker with one ticket it's going to get pulled out the hat. And then we ended the conversation pretty much on that note. And I remember just sitting there going... I'm definitely a wanker and I've got one ticket. So, and then it was, I never done anything at that point. And then it was the Saturday morning, probably about two weeks before the entries closed. And I'm sat there four o'clock in the morning, just at my breakfast, getting ready to go for my long run. And I was like, I better just see if that race is still a qualifier. And then for some reason, that conversation that me and Paul had had was like totally stuck in my head. So I was like, I that race is a qualifier. And I definitely still a wanker. So fuck it. <laughs> the entry get put in. No. Actually, a weirdly had like a strange feeling about the entry at that point in time. And then obviously when I get the call for Derek, there wasn't that many people. I don't know why I thought it was a big elaborate hoax because there was very few people that I actually had told about it other than maybe Paul and Derek. And then, uh, aye, then it all happened. I mean, I was watching, I, I didn't even have an entry and I was watching the draw and it was like John Conley Dumbarton and I'm like, all oh, right, there must be two John Conleys down there. <laughs> you know, you know I, just didn't, I just didn't think you were in for it. And, um, and it was brilliant to see so you've got your entry, right? But let's take a wee step back into the mess of time, right? Because you don't just rock up to a 100-mile race and, and start running that. <clears throat> um, or just You have to qualify for Western States. So the point there for anyone listening is, is there's only certain races which get you a qualifying ticket for the Western States ballot. So you can't just go, anybody can put their name in. You have to have run a certain race or one of a certain number of races within a certain time window in order to get an entry. And then if you have multiple years of entries you accrue more tickets for the raffle and it quite literally is a tombola where they're just pulling names out the hat so at the point where john's name's in the hat for something like maybe 250 spaces there's probably 12 13,000 tickets because of the cumulative tickets tickets. well (laughs) there you go so that is so that's incredible and it, it becomes ever more so it used to be if you had six tickets you were guaranteed entry but now there's so many people entering, so it is a massive stroke of luck to do that. But actually, John, prior to that, you'd had a couple of goes at running 100-mile races, right? So you've got into the premium 100-mile race in the world, but you don't actually have a 100-mile race finished behind you. Talk to me about that. I have got quite a relation or pretty poor relationship with trying to complete 100-mile races. You had quite a poor relationship, I think, yeah, I think the, the story's got a happy ending, but te- just talk to us a wee bit about that. Maybe just pull out one or two lowlights in your 100-mile career up to that point, because I think it's it's a real good case study in um, going, and going and going again, right? I think, I mean, I could turn around and just rhyme off 100-mile races that I've not been successful in, but I think there's, like, 
I've done a lot of work in the past six, seven months. Um, I've kind of I've recruited the help of a sports psychologist and kind of really delved into a lot of the reasons why I hadn't had such a successful experience previously in 100-mile races because I've always been physically capable of finishing 100-mile races, particularly mm. anyone yeah. that I've entered, maybe with the exception of two, one of them being the West Highland Way that James supported us on, ended up with like some sort of an ear infection for about two weeks after that. So there was obviously something at work that day. And then the other one was probably... Lakeland, the year, the final year that I was over at Western States with Paul, where I had this ongoing issue that was flaring up every, I don't know, sometimes it would go a year without flaring up, and then other times it would be flaring up mm. every couple of months. And it got that bad that year that when I was in Western States, it flared up the day before the race, so I was unable to actually pace for Paul. And then I have to say that was probably one of the, the lowest points in my, my running life. Um, I remember flying back to San Francisco and just being absolutely devastated that that was effectively the end of our, our Western States adventure. And I hadn't got to run that last 38 miles with Paul. And then it was about five weeks after that, I stood in the start line for Lakeland absolutely convinced that there was no way that I was going to finish that race. I actually remember speaking to Karen and she was down there with Scott and we're having a chat about uh, getting ready for the race and what have you and she gave me a set of headphones and in order to get the headphone case in my bag I went and pulled out all this stuff and passed it to Karen and says can you hold that for us a minute and just didn't realise that one of the things that I'd handed her was like this bag of 20 painkillers and Karen's look of horror on her face was like, what do you need to wear this for? And I'm like, oh, because I've got this issue that I'm trying to manage. And I think like if there was ever a, a message to turn in and say to somebody, like if you've got any underlying issues or if you've got injuries or anything like that, either as well, just no starting the race. Because I was like, I knew before I even started that race that I was never going to finish it. I wasn't capable of finishing it just because of the pain and discomfort that I was in because of this issue. And if you're rocking up to the start line with 20 painkillers, then yeah. just you're as well calling yeah. it a day there and then. Um, but other races, I think like I've been quite fortunate in that I've been able to support Paul in some of his bigger adventures three times at Western States, once at UTMB. So I think my vicarious experiences have been far more positive than my actual experiences. And then working with Rob this year, I think that has actually been one of the things that's worked against me from a race perspective. So I get to go and uh, have these experiences with Paul and watch him run in these 100-mile races and do exceptionally well in them. And I'm thinking to myself, he's making this look easy, but... I obviously don't appreciate the suffering and the pain that Paul needs to go through to be able to perform like that because I've never experienced it. So then when I was rocking up to my 100-mile races and they weren't living up to my vicarious experiences and they were all of a sudden becoming really, really tough, and then realisation was setting in about how tough it is to actually go and try and race them because I think that was one of the mistakes that I also made with 100-mile races was... And I started doing them, I started trying to race them, like actually try to be up at the front end, compete, win. And that was another thing that 
mean, Paul advised me not to do it, but you don't always listen to what your coach says. And again, it was a difficult lesson to learn. And God, it's been strung out now for, I don't know, what, four or five years where I've been trying to get that 100-mile finish. Um, aye, and it's it's taken quite a bit of learning and quite a bit of insight to, to eventually get it. But when you're lucky enough to get your name pulled out the hat for Western States, you need to fully invest and leave no stone unturned because it was one of the things that we spoke about was that if I was actually going to go and do this race, which I actually never fully committed to doing until May, then you need to make sure that you're going there to finish regardless. Interesting. Paul, from a coach's point of view, John's just talked through <clears throat> what must have been really hard for you to watch from the sidelines as a coach because you know the capabilities there, but there's just something getting in the way. Did you see anything different happen with John in this, the build-up to this that you would say that there's the, there's a silver bullet and there may not be one or there's the there's the theme that changed things? I guess it's, it's maybe a bit cliche, but for me it's all about it's all about the why and maybe before John wasn't totally clear on why he was going into them and what he was hoping to get out of them and this time I've never I don't remember seeing John so relaxed about it I, I think I think he obviously carried a lot of pressure into Western States you can't help but carry pressure into Western States um, even if it's your first one because everybody knows who's running everybody in the UK knows the two or three people from the UK are going to be running Western States so um, I, I I saw John try to distance himself from that a little bit and just keep it really low key. We had to change his training a fair bit this time. Um, before, like, well, I guess it says everything about having a coach. Sometimes it's like I I could give somebody a plan right now that you know that's a kind of plan that I went for and that's a plan that delivered me some good success at Western States. But it's, it has to be down on an individual level. So we, were, we knew John had some issues that could creep up and had crept up before when we'd maybe push the volume too much or we'd push the intensity. So we had to be quite kind of crafty about the training. And I think, well, it's easy to say now because he had such a good result, but I think we, we got it right. And it was hard for John to step back a wee bit and not be doing like 40-mile runs, you know, every single weekend and stuff. And... um. John's had a fair amount of commitment from a work side of things as well and family too so actually you had to be quite creative about the training but it, it worked really well and we managed to back off at the right time we've got great communication now which we never always had even though we've been friends we haven't always communicated terribly well as coaching athletes sometimes but John was saying to me I think I need to back off this weekend a wee bit or you know I'm okay taking a break there so he was much more relaxed this time we could be a wee bit more flexible with his training um, and he did a huge amount of work working on his own mindset really um, and I think that made a big difference so going into the race <laughs> I'll let you John tell you a bit more about what happened the week before the race and getting there and stuff like that but um, he was really relaxed and, and didn't seem to get stressed about anything he was way more relaxed than I've ever been going into Western States I think Yeah we'll talk a wee bit about that um, week leading up to the race I've seen some of the tweets there Lingus um, but, John, <laughs> just pulling back on something you mentioned, um, you didn't commit to the race fully until May. Talk to us about what, what, what was going on there. Why was so that? So there was probably two or three things that I had to, to put big ticks in the boxes for. One of them was was able to run 100 miles and my, ba my body be able to do it. So 
on Hugmanay, me and Paul decided that we would do one of our last minute, do you want to go and run up a mountain for the bells sort of thing? And as we went away up to, we were up to Ben Lomond for Hugmanay and we kind of hatched this plan about, right, so how do we, how do we test if you can run a hundred miles? And we're like, well, why do we not just run the West Highland Way in the winter and we'll do the vast majority of it unsupported so it's really low key and takes very little organisation and stuff like that. And uh, that was the first thing that we done. So I think it was like about five or six weeks later, we kind of says, I'd say to Paul is that the important thing is one, don't put any pressure on myself by turning around and saying that I might run a specific time. And two, again, it's all just about completion. And as long as we can get through it, then that puts a tick in the box for me for that. So we went out and we, we ran the, the West Highland Way. I think the first that we've seen anybody was probably Robert Dunning. Graham came up and made us a wee bit of breakfast and then we pretty much ran the vast majority of it for there on in. Um, and I think we met, we met Gavin Graham at Drummond as well and then that was it. But, uh, Aye, we went north, so north that, to south. Is that north? Aye, north, north to south, south yeah. yeah. Okay, so you basically ran, you've ran the better part of 70 miles Aye, without seeing anyone. basically jumped basically. the train at 12 o'clock yeah. at my house, get dropped off at 4 o'clock at Fort William and ran home. It was brilliant. Absolutely. <laughs> it was one of the best like, in the 24 hours, I think, that I've kind of spent for a kind of running perspective and that we just jumped in a train and then ran 100 miles home. It was absolutely brilliant. And then... Uh, I can remember we bumped into Richie Darrock and Alan Carr in the car park in Balmaha. They were like, oh, so is that you just starting or are you coming back whilst they're tucking into their, 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 their egg sandwiches? And I'm sitting there and I'm always going, no, we, we left with Fort William at four o'clock yesterday. And I'm, they never even offered us a sandwich or anything. Yeah, <laughs> like, Throw me a bone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. But there was something something that I think you, you almost glossed over it, but it was a really important part, and I wonder whether it started to play into your Western States journey as well. <clears throat> and you never put any pressure on yourself regarding hours, minutes, and seconds. It was just about the completion and the experience. So instead of putting an anchor around your neck that would become something that you would chase, you just got rid of all of that and you just went out there and put one foot in front of the other? Was that the mindset? I, I mean, I've done that for the past few years. There was a point in time where, I suppose, when there was a big extrinsic, extrinsic motivation for it to do well in races, that I would put together um, training, I'd put together a race plan with specific time goals, whether it was like a gold, silver and bronze, and then I would uh, try and run it as hard as I possibly could. And then what would end up happening is if you never achieved any of these sort of goals, I would just give myself a bit of a hard time about it and it would it would last for quite a considerable time. I'm talking like maybe months after a race where you'd be beating yourself up by this ridiculous time that you've sat down and put on something that I don't really well, I suppose sometimes you've got an idea of what you're going to run, but sometimes for me it ended up it was just becoming I don't know if I was maybe being a bit over ambitious or if I was, say, uh, I don't, I don't really know, but I was making things a bit hard for myself in terms of putting the plans together. So in the past couple of years, I just decided that I wasn't going to put any times to any races that I was going to do at all. I was just going to go and basically run them to feel, and that seems to have worked out for us a lot better. That was um, quite interesting what you were talking about there. So you you took the pressure of time 
and expectations off yourself and in a litter of terms almost became carefree Connolly, you know, you took away all that pressure. Was that something you then consciously worked on? You talked about a sports psychologist to take into Western States. I think it's something that I'd taken into consideration quite some time ago, James, that I had found that I was having poor performances when I was setting quite ambitious times. Well, I say I wasn't having poor performances when I wasn't achieving the times that I had set myself. I was being pretty hard on myself for a longer period of time, so therefore I wasn't then enjoying the events. And I quickly realised that that was one of the things that was contributing into my dislike of racing um, because it got to a point where I just didn't want to race. I wasn't enjoying it. Um, I wasn't, even when you were relatively successful, the success, the, the good feeling would last all of 25, 30 minutes. And then after that, you would go back into this kind of critical thinking of, how do I, I should have done this better, I could have ran better. And then you start looking at times that other people have run previously and you start thinking to yourself, I mean, I know I ran a good race and you might have won that race, but the people that were running that two and three years before you would, I bet you'd be like 25, 30 minutes. So I ended up, I, I was quite hard and harsh on myself when it came to racing and I just wasn't enjoying it. And that was one of the things that was kind of making it unenjoyable. So I removed any sort of time pressures or goals or anything like that from my racing quite some time ago and just decided that I was going to go and enjoy the events or try to enjoy the events to try and go over this um, dislike of, of racing or hatred of racing, I would go as far to say, because there would be points in time where I would stood on a starting line having conversations with myself and just kind of, <laughs> this, this conversations were absolutely brutal where it was along the lines of, the fuck are you even doing here? Why why have you done this again? Why, what what are you going to get out of this? You know what's going to happen. It's just going to end up absolutely crap again. And like Transgan Canaria was I ran that twice. And the first time I ran it, I managed to keep on top of the negative thoughts for pretty much 70-80% of the race because it was the first race that I'd ever done abroad and it was really exciting and it was cool and everything else like that but then the negativity kind of crept in for the, the latter part of it and then the second time I ran it I just had an absolutely crap 30-40 mile where um, it took me some, it took some work to basically get over that negativity and then I think I'd spoke to you guys about this uh, previously obviously not on the podcast but uh, personally that it's the first time that I've ever kind of came through something so negative and finished on such a high and been so positive and it gave me real kind of confidence um, that sometimes if you stick stick to it that you will come out the other end of it and that was probably the first time that I'd ever managed to get right through it and the earlier parts are used to then for it to be a, a kind of a more positive outcome um but i i mean speaking with rob in the build up to it so we had the discussion about the west highland way and we had the discussion about what sort of things had worked in the past um that led to a more kind of favorable or positive outcome and it was removing that time constraint so i that was something that we consciously done just so that you never had that stick to beat yourself with 
That that's um, I mean, there's so much to unpick from that, John. But it's really, first of all, really honest of you to share that 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 because people would look at you, look at your race results, multiple wins, you know, some big results and stuff, and think, oh, that guy's amazing. But we all have our own elements of self doubt sometimes caused by our own thinking, as you've just outlined. But also, in order to climb to the peaks, we have to cut out the troughs. And I guess what you what you were working on there is is how do you narrow that range between peak and trough, but actually keep the peak as high as it could be and just bring that trough up closer to the peak so you're, you're not having as big swings from high to low. Talking about swings from high to low then, let's start moving towards Western States. Something happened in the week leading up to the race with your gear and stuff, and you've travelled all the way over to America, um, you've got all your stuff packed, all your st- t- tell us what happened there. I had a feeling it was going to happen for the honest few games, and I had the discussions with Paul and the build-up to it so much so that I had made sure that I'd packed all my essential race kit, so like a shorts, t-shirt, pair of trainers, my running vest, but there's only so much that you can get in your hand luggage, and as you know yourself, when you're yeah. going to go and run a 100-mile race, you'd get the kitchen sink with you sometimes, so um, I, the vast majority of my stuff was in my luggage that was in the hall hold and I unsurprisingly to me it did not show up at San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, it did. And where is it just now? The idea. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Absolutely no idea. We're over I don't know, over two weeks now, isn't it, Paul? As, and James, even when it happened, like it's happened to me a couple of times at San Francisco, if I'm honest. Um and it's usually been like a ski bag or something, so it's an unusual shape and that's the excuse why it never got loaded. Normally, it would be delivered up uh, to where John was staying, maybe in two or three days. So I never really thought much of it. I thought it's a bit of a pain that he's going to have to, you know, maybe go out and get some toiletries and whatever, wash his clothes a couple of times. But yeah, no sign of it at all. No response the whole time <laughs> from from the company either. On the on the Sunday morning when I woke up in, in Truckee and realised that they hadn't even sent me the response in terms of the, the baggage reference number. Right away I was kind of going, well, the fact that they've no issued that number means that somebody hasn't even started looking for this bag yet because it's obviously no in their system because seemingly that's something that's automatically, automatically generated once they've got the bag tag in the system. So as soon as I woke up on Sunday morning in Truckee and realised that that hadn't happened, I went straight into, right, I need to make sure that I've got kit for the race. So I basically spent the whole of the Sunday morning buying trainers online, getting flasks delivered, buying lit stuff for keeping this cool during the race and everything else like that. Because, I mean, Truckee's quite a, an isolated town. Uh, California's a pretty big place and Truckee's quite remote. So the likes of the luxury that we've got in Glasgow where you put in an Amazon delivery and uh, an Amazon order and sometimes it's delivered that day that's that's not the case in Truckee it's like three four five days later it shows up so I kind of had that in the back of my mind and knew that if I ordered the stuff and my bag turned up at least I could return the stuff that I had ordered but if I waited until the Wednesday or the Thursday when there was a good chance that the bag wasn't going to show up either the Thursday or Friday then I knew at that point in time then I'd have been absolutely snookered for having any equipment to actually run with. So I can, that, I think that was part of the reason why I was a wee bit calmer during the week is because I had basically figured out that there's a chance that it was going to happen and I, I basically preemptively ordered all that stuff. So I was a wee bit more comfortable in the fact that 
I knew I'd have the stuff for the race. And then there was another bit as well as where you, <laughs> you read all these books and everything else like that about stoic behaviour and then you read all these other things about being mindful and what have you. And there's just sometimes something like that needs to happen for you to be able to put it on a practice and it was one of the things that at the end of the week it was probably one of the things that was most proud of was the fact that i never let that ruin my experience or get in the way of me no finishing the race it, it never played it, there was no negativity associated with my race because of that and that was one yeah. of the things that was probably most proud of is that I was yeah. able to keep my shit together. Yeah, it was pretty impressive, John, I have to say. There would have been a point in time, as you know, yeah. Paul, maybe a couple of years ago where I wouldn't have been mm. quite as calm or collected. You'd have went, went full Louis Faringo a few years back, you know, full Louis Faringo wrecking things. No, I mean, not as bad as that, but certainly that could have derailed your whole race, right? Aye. Um, and another hurdle you had to overcome. So, we're working up towards you getting onto the start line, but you've got someone on your crew who you've crewed for three times at states i yeah. think you crewed for paul three times i uh, let me down once yeah three, three times at states once at UTMB, once at west highland way but who's counting <laughs> <laughs> um well me that was five um so far so paul you're out there crewing for john um, and I can only imagine what it's like, the, the memories of coming back, you know, three times top ten. I think you must have run it four times, I think, yeah. um, if I'm counting yeah. right. Um, you've been out in Western States a lot, but it was a chapter, you, we talked about it in the podcast before, you kind of left it behind you, you know, you go into other things. Yeah. But what was the what was it like? What was the reminiscences like once you got out there? Uh, it was a strange couple of weeks for me, James, to be honest. That was the first time I was back at the West Island Way Race. It's the first time the West Island Way Race has run for a few years. Uh, and I was there crewing uh, just a weekend before. So literally crewing at the West Highland Way race, and that was another race that was a big part of my career and something that I really focused on for a long time and had a strong emotional connection to. Um, I finished that and got up the road on the Sunday, and then I flew out Monday morning, first thing. So the next thing I know, I'm back in uh, San Francisco and then heading up to Truckee with John and Melanie. So... Yeah, it, it it felt a bit strange. I felt a little bit strange on the West Island Way, and it's a race, like you said, that I'd maybe put to bed um, a long time ago, but standing on the start line or walking through the start line, James, and I, I saw you there, obviously, I, I kind of felt like yeah. it would have been nice to have been on the start line to that. And then to be in uh, California and to be up Squaw Valley or whatever it's called, Palisades now, um, yeah, I, d I did feel like I was missing it a little bit. But actually... I was probably more nervous for the people that was crewing than I have been on the actual start line on both races, uh, just because you so desperately want them to have a good experience and you want to do your best as well. And it's funny, John mentioned there about uh, one of the Western states that he crewed for me, he hurt himself and he couldn't pace me in, in the last section or whatever. I never really considered how John maybe felt on the back of that. And I only realised this now because I was crewing, because I was almost nervous, like, I hope I'm going to be able to be strong enough to to run with him in the last 40 miles and do what he needs to doing. Um, and how seriously I was taking that responsibility kind of thing. So I only had an appreciation for how John must have felt like he'd somehow let me down or something because he couldn't run then. And I didn't, I didn't think about it. It was just like he'd had this pain and he couldn't run the day before. And I was like, well, there's nothing you can do about it. It's fine, but... 
um, I, I I would have taken that um, pretty harsh as well if I wasn't able to to give him what he needed. So, yeah, it was it was um, an interesting couple of weeks being back at both races like that and in such quick succession. And and in the race, Paul, did you were you there at the start with John and followed him through until you picked up um, pacing duties? And at what point did you pick up pacing duties? Uh, yes, I was there from the start. We got around to well. I say like it would have been nice to be on the start line. I do remember when you go to Squaw Valley, it's dark, it's bit early morning, you're there at maybe half past four. There's a bit of a buzz around. It's a ski village, I guess. Um, and there are a lot of nerves then. And I was thinking, well, it's kind of nice maybe that it's, it's not me this time and it's John, although I was just as nervous. Uh, so we, we saw them off and then you can't really see them unless you've got two crews. You can't really see them until Robinson Flat. Uh, which is about 30, 32 miles or something into the race. Uh, so you've got quite a long kind of period then. Although you don't have a huge amount of time, by the time you drive down there and get up and you've got to get on a bus to get up to the actual uh, checkpoint and stuff. Um, that was the first time we could see John. And then I think the next time was Michigan Bluff, which again, uh, like standing at that checkpoint and you see some of the guys coming through and, and John had pulled together a plan. Um, albeit he wasn't really focused on a time it's quite important that you still write some kind of plan for a race like that just so John himself and we can judge how much is he pushing too much or is he just about wh- yep. where we should be in order to deliver this good outcome um, so yeah I was I was nervous standing at Robinson Flat because I hadn't seen him at all and um, he has had some issues in the past but like for that split second when I saw him coming I'm, I'm like I'm trying to read all the signals from him like is he okay? Is he not? And I was like, "Are you okay?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's good. It's all good." And it was getting hot then, and I, I, I know what it feels like to run into Robinson Flat, thinking you've already maybe run a bit hard and stuff, and um, you've got a lot ahead of you at that point. You're just about to drop into the canyon, so uh, it was good. And then Michigan Bluff again. Well, John will probably talk you through how it felt through the race, but Michigan Bluff can be a tough point as well. It gets really hot by that point. Uh, and you've been through the toughest parts of the course, and he was really positive again at Michigan Bluff. So uh, it's then Forest Hill, which is about 60 miles. Um, that's the biggest, probably, um, aid station uh, on the course. That's where I can run run with them. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it was good. Right. And, John, before the race, you know you've got Paul there to support you. I think Mel's out supporting you as well. Um as part of your crew, um, but you've got a long old way to go on your own. Um, <clears throat> and obviously we've got people live tracking you. I was live tracking you from the off. And um, my big thing was, is I just wanted you to have a great experience and enjoy it. And then we look at the first few aid stations and you just looks like, we, we could see, I, I can't remember one, it, Dylan Bowman was getting excited at every aid station because there was some filming and stuff. If you've seen any of the YouTube stuff, it's brilliant. Literally that guy would get excited if somebody dropped a sweetie paper, right? And um but we could watch and I seen you coming through on YouTube and there's videos going around people sending it to each other. So there was a kind of contingent supporting you back home. But you're out there for those first 30 or so miles, kind of on your own, right? Obviously in, in the race. How were you holding it together? Your, pre, your pre-race nerves and then how did it feel once you got to the top of that first climb? Which I kind of feels to me is like when it feels like you've started to settle into the event. Aye, so the, pre-nerf, the pre-race nerves is... Something that, I mean, if somebody can figure out a way of being able to manage those nerves and or no even have them, then they're going to make themselves an awful lot of money. Um, I just remember sitting there with, watching the clock count down with about just under 10 minutes to go. 
And uh, just the, the week and the months leading up to the race, I was finding myself getting quite emotional thinking about it. Um, there was a couple of big, long, long runs and some tough training sessions that we had done where I would just be in the middle of the session and then all of a sudden I'd be finding all these emotions all just rising up and getting quite teary. And uh, it was, there was some real powerful emotional shit going on in the run up to it. And then when you stood yeah. there um, with 10 minutes to go and <laughs> you've got your best mate beside you, <laughs> he just came up and gave us a cuddle and I just, there was a release. Um, I get quite emotional just thinking about it the now, but I, there was, um, there was almost that, there, there had to be that, I, I felt there had to be that emotional release at that point in time, um, just so that I could effectively just relax and get into my stride. And it's, it's right what you're saying, you get to the top of that first climb, and as long as you've not been a fucking idiot at climbing up those, I think it's what, two or three miles or something like that, and you've got like 2,000 foot of climbing, as long as you've, I, I, I made this, I, I ran that the Sunday before the race, and that was the first day that I was there, and it was almost just to kind of get a feel for the altitude, and I remember running up there, as I would normally do at a really kind of easy effort, and my head was absolutely banging, my lungs were burning, and I could feel my legs burning as well, the lactic acid burning, a cat building in my legs, and I was sitting going like that to myself, this is me hardly pushing it, and this is the, the effect that it's having on it. So when it comes to race day, I just need to do everything in my power to make sure that I don't, none of that happens. I don't get the burning lungs, I don't get the lactic acid in the muscles, because if that's going to happen in the first couple of miles, then it's a long way to go, try to like recover for that. So I took it super, super easy on that first climb. And I remember climbing up it and thinking to myself, I've got this time, I can't remember where it was to get to the top of the escarpment, and I just remember bursting out laughing at myself and going, oh, well, that's that plan out the window, that's no happening, I'm just going to chill my beans, I'm going to enjoy this, I'm going to get to the top, and it's really interesting because at the beginning of the race, I can't remember if it's Craig Thornley that does that brief in no. the, the race or if it's the other guy, yeah. but he says some beautiful words about the race and about the the kind of the spirit of the race and the camaraderie and stuff like that amongst the people. And he talks about the female athletes and how they've got this sisterhood about when they get to the top of the hit that climb, they all turn around, they embrace each other, they welcome the sunrise and everything like that. Whereas all the male athletes have all got this crazy ego going and they're like, yeah, fuck this, we're off. And they just disappear into the other part of it. The, they just drop down the back of the escarpment and then vanish into the kind of the, the wilderness. And I remember just getting to the top of the escarpment. I've chilled my beans. I've had a great kind of easy climb on the way up there. And the amount of people that's up there just cheering you on and like getting super pumped for the race. I was like, this is amazing. I'm just going to absorb all this energy and then take that with me for here to Robinson. And then by that time, Paul will have my soaked oats and then that will get me the rest <laughs> of the <time. laughs> But uh, I put your soaked oats. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing that initial climb and then dropping off. And then the other bit of it as well, I know it's a, it's a long way to go. And I'd kind of figured out that it'd be like six, seven hours before I was going to see 
Mel and Paul. Now, that part of the Western States um, course, I've never ran on it. I've ran on quite a lot of the other parts, um, particularly Forest Hill to the, the high school. And then also we've done a bit of running around about Robinson Flat up to Dusty Corners and stuff like that. So kind of familiar with that part of the course. And I think that was one of the things that excited me the most was that I was going to get to run that entire section of the Western States for the very first time and it was all going to be brand new to me. And the other thing that's actually amazing about it, and I kind of mentioned this to Paul, the great thing about Western States, particularly that bit in the high country, is there's a lot of undulation and what have you, but the trail actually goes along the top of the mountains and it goes along ridge lines. So you're actually up there with the mountain peaks, whereas if you go over to say UTMB, a lot of the running's done in the valleys and you're just intimidated with these big massive mountains that are towering thousands of feet above you. Whereas in Western states, the just the openness, the vastness, the it's just the the views are, are, are endless and it's just absolutely breathtaking and there was no way in the world that I was going to run that first 30 miles and no enjoy it because of the surroundings and because of where it was. It was just, it almost, it just felt like a reward. And then I kind of said it in the, the post-race interview, the, my kind of bog standard plan was to enjoy the high country, survive the canyons, and then if I had done everything right up to that point, then I was going to race for Orest Hill. And I mean, if you were going to write that down as your race plan, I'd say that I absolutely executed that perfectly um, because the high country was absolutely amazing. And then the canyons as well. I mean, the canyons are pretty amazing, but at the same time, geez, oh, it's, it's not until you get right down into the bottom of them and you're like, oh, there's no air down here and <laughs> everything just radiates heat. You're sitting there and you're getting heat, getting blasted at you for trees and surfaces and the sun, and it's just, there's just no escaping it. But you just need to get your shit together I mean, and get back out of it again. And it, that's quite a canny race planning, as much that you're not putting yourself under too much pressure. Let's talk about how your race unfolded then, <clears throat> and we'll just spin through this quite quickly, right? The most impressive thing for me and anyone I was in communication with through the race was. You were like a baddie in a horror film. Every time you went through a, a kind of major checkpoint, you'd taken another couple of people down. So if I just, if we just talk, I'm just going to talk through it in 20 mile chunks here just to give some flavour of it. So you get to the top of escarpment and you're 96th. <clears throat> you know, so you're, 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 you know, you're not way down the, the back of the field, but at the same time, you're not troubling the front. Um, and then 20 miles later, you've moved up to 89th. And then we fast forward another 20 miles and you're, you're into last chance and you're you're up to 74th. So you've gained 22 miles, uh, 22 places. Then you get to Forest Hill and you've picked up Paul in 62nd place. And this is overall, you know, this isn't male or female, this is just overall. And from there, you don't, I don't think you see a pair of heels again. You just start showing people, you know, a clean set of heels all the way in to the point where you cross the finish line in, in 42nd in 21 hours and 53 minutes 22 so watching it from afar just hitting f5 and going is he there yet is he there yet you know because it gives us predicted time it just felt like what you were doing was continually moving forward within yourself but also pushing 
to try and just eke out a place every time you went through um, um, a checkpoint, but it just felt like a really brilliantly executed and controlled race. Is that how it felt on the day? Aye, aye. I would, I would absolutely agree with you. It was the, the latter part of the race. I was up... I didn't want to let Paul down when I got to Forest Hill and I didn't want it to be like a pity story for the two years basically death marching in for 38 miles because I had made a decision prior to going out there that it didn't matter what it took. I was going to come home with a buckle, whether it was silver or bronze. It didn't matter. I was coming home with one. And if I had a made an arse in the earlier part of the race season, the earlier part of the race and then picked up Paul and we had to walk it in for Forest Hill, then that would have been quite a long night and quite a long day. We would have still got the buckle, but I don't think it would have been as positive as an experience as what it was. Um, I just felt that when we got to... It was quite funny because when, when I met Paul at Michigan North, we had, the, we had a, a quick, like something to eat, something to drink. And that was the first time that I'd actually asked anybody about how the front of the race was unfolding. And Paul had kind of gave us his view on what he'd seen with certain athletes and what have you, which we found quite interesting. And I was like, all right, well, that comes as no surprise. And, oh, that's amazing. This one's doing that X, Y, and Z, and what have you. And then I says to Paul, I was like, all right, so I'll get you Forest Hill, probably be just about hour and hour. And Paul was like, no, 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 you'll be, you'll be two hours. Just take it easy because you actually get back down into the canyons here and then you've got this bit and then you've got a climb here and it's pretty tough because it gets hot again and then you've got that big climb up out of Bath Road or is it Bath, Bath Road? You get a big climb out of Bath Road and what have you and then when you get to top of Bath Road you've still got like a mile and a half to get back like down into Forest Hill so just take your time and what have you and then get to Forest Hill and get you sorted out there. That comes through. I, I, I ran out of a Michigan buff, and there was a bit of me that there was just a wee switch had went and clicked over where I'd went, look, I've survived the canyons. I actually feel really good now. It's starting to get, <laughs> I was going to say, it's starting to get cooler. I think it was only about 35 degrees at that point. It was like, so <laughs> I just started kind of says to me, there was a wee switch that clicked, and I went, you know something, I'm just going to start maybe running some of these climbs that I was initially walking. So I started putting a wee bit of an effort in, made sure that I was moving well, got to the top of Bath Road, and I was like, oh, I thought Paul would have been here to meet me. And then um, ran down into Forest Hill and kind of got to the aid station, I was like, oh, fuck, I thought Paul would have been here or at least seen Mel. Gets into the aid station and I'm like, shit, I hope they haven't had an accident in their car. So at that point in time, I'm at the aid station filling up bags full of food and what have you. I'm getting ice put on me. I'm getting soaked and everything because I'm going, I would, I, I would have definitely been here if if it was Paul that was running. And then the next minute all I hear is, I can't believe you've got here already. And I turn around and I'm like, where were you? He's like, I was in the toilet and all I heard was your name getting shouted and I went, oh, fuck. <laughs> so fucking flying out. And uh, I, it was actually, that gave me a lot of confidence as well because I'd kind of caught them off guard and gave them a surprise of how quickly I'd got to that point. So the fact that I'd got there at Forest Hill and was still feeling really good, that then just kind of gave me that confidence that I can keep moving at this sort of pace and it's not going to actually be detrimental because 
it's going to get cooler. The bit for Forest Hill down to Rocky Chucky is predominantly downhill, and it's no like a gradient where it's really, really steep. It's actually quite a nice gradient to run down, but if you've looked after yourself in the earlier part of the race where it is really steep and you've no blowing your quads, then you can actually move really well down that section. And that was just the thing that I wanted to make sure that I'd done was that I just kept moving and moving. And I knew, I'd say to Paul, I was like, if I can keep moving at, a, at this pace, the there's going to be carnage ahead. We're going to catch all these runners. We're going to, there's just going to be people that are just, they've went out just that wee bit too hard and they're suffering and they're going to be hanging on for that last 10, 15 mile and we're going to take some, some big scalps along the way and it, it panned out that way. It was it was a it was a hugely a confidence building experience. I mean, for, I mean, from Forest Hill to Rocky Chucky, you took down eight people um, in that period, and actually, you ran from Michigan Bluff to Forest Hill in one twenty-seven. But that wouldn't include your time in aid station at Michigan Bluff, right? So it would be one twenty-seven minus whatever time between you enter and exit in Michigan Bluff. So. It just shows you how well and strong you ran that section, <clears throat> and I guess you've picked up Paul at this point. Aye. And remember, we talked we talked at the start of the pod about you know your your um your less than perfect history with hundred milers, but it sounds to me like at this point it isn't a question of well I can I finish this. It's a question of how fast am I going to finish this now? Uh, Is that where the head was? Uh, it wasn't until we got to the first aid station. Paul made me drink a can of that Canadian Dry. But. Is that not something you have with like Morgan Spice or something like that? Is that that's a mix of drink? It's like it's like a ginger ale thing that they've got at all the aid stations, and we kind of get into that aid station. The the reason that they've got it there is it's, it helps for settling people's stomachs when it's yeah when feeling quite unwell. And Paul kind of cracked open a can, took a drink yourself, and then handed it to me and went, "Here, have some of that." And here's me in the hole, right? Just day with Paul's telling me today, I try and tan the whole can in the one go, and then at the same time, I'm like eating loads of food and stuff like that. It's in there, and we must have ran about 100 meters out of the aid station around the corner. And I was like, Oh, Paul, stand by. And I, there was a wee bit of vomit. And honestly, you should So that wasn't the only rocky chucky in the corner. Honestly, then. I've, there was I've more never than seen one. disappointment in Paul's face like it in all my life. So I threw up, and I'm like, <laughs> Oh fuck! I'm getting the authentic experience here. I'm I'm getting everything, and I just look at Paul and he's kind of half shaking his head, and he's like, "Are you ready to go?" And I'm like, "No, no, no, no. There's a bit more still to come." And there's like this wee smile comes back in his face, and then there's a wee bit of vomit comes up, and I look at him again, and he's fucking disappointed. I'm like, "What is up with this guy?" And he's like, "Are you ready to go?" And I'm like, "No, no, no. Wait a minute. Next minute, it's coming out my eyelids. It's coming out my nose. It's coming out everywhere." <laughs> And I just look at him and he's got this big cheesy grin in his face and he's going, that's me, I like it. That's that's what I was waiting for because their last two efforts were pathetic. I'm like, oh, thanks very much, mate. <laughs> there you go, eh? That's your best mate for you. Aye. And I think <laughs> what, me, what so, I actually so... says to Paul, so at that point I just kind of stopped and like that's the first time that I've like, proper vomited in a race. And I kind of just went like that to Paul, right, I need to start again then, we need to start hydrating, we need to start eating. There would have been a point in time, maybe a couple of years ago, where that would have been probably race ending for me, but I was just like, yeah. 
Right, we need to go again. Paul's sitting going, but you feel brilliant now. But you feel great now. Oh, I wish I could feel as good as what you feel now. <laughs> that sort of stuff. <laughs> uh, you've got to have experienced that, the, the pleasure of a chunder in a hundred mile oh. So, Paul, you're running alongside John by this point. Are you, are you surprised and impressed by the level of calm and control? What, what's going on with you as a crew? Uh, I, I was very conscious. Like, uh, obviously... I've been there four times and I've usually, I've always had somebody pace me there. Sometimes it was strangers, sometimes it was John. Uh, I think Giff did it one year as well. Um, I'm kind of conscious, see when you've been on your own and you've been running on your own for all that time, it can take a little bit of time to settle in with a pacer because you either feel a, feel yeah. a bit of pressure to run a certain pace that your pacer's doing or uh, you just feel like, well, I, I need to be shown that I'm strong and all that kind of stuff. So I didn't want to put any pressure on John, particularly in the first five to ten miles. It was just like, we can run at whatever pace you want to, John. I can be in the front or I can go at the back, whatever you want. So at the moment, I'll just go at the front and we'll just keep moving. And if somebody's going to come up behind us, we'll let them go because we know we'll catch them later. So don't feel any pressure. There's no pressure to pass people. We'll see how it goes. Um, and then we got to that point. Uh, I had wished... And I was raging at the time, James. I was going to take my camera out and record him as big vomit, but I was just like frustrated because I was like, if you're going to be sick, let's do it properly. Let's just get it out and then let's keep moving. It was just kind of hanging about, waiting a couple of times, two or three little pathetic ones. Let's just get it out and they get moving. Um, so like, I was conscious of, of making sure that we didn't go too hard. I've gone too hard in that. Well, I don't know. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it turned out and that was a good result at the time. But that section, when you get there, you're 60 miles in, you're feeling like, you know, you're over halfway. You've got 18, 19 miles down to Rocky Chucky. You can you can push that section if you want to. And I didn't want him to push too hard on that section so that you get to Rocky Chucky. That last 20-odd miles or whatever can feel like a really long way sometimes if you've absolutely blown yourself at that point. So we kind of took it easy, but John was like, super smooth just running really well the pace was good we weren't going super hard the pace was good we were any like short steep inclines we were just hiking them well and just kept on moving the whole time there was no no grumbling i never once heard from him that oh my legs are sore or this is sore or my feet are bad or my stomach's not good there was none of that at all it was all just kind of light chat keeping it moving it was good i mean this it's really impressive to hear the mindset yeah and the way you've approached it, John. But let me, and you've talked really brilliantly, Erlen, and I could see you getting emotional. I know people have been listening to this, and it's not a medium where you can see that when you were talking about how you felt at the start. Let's fast forward to you coming into the, the finish and you first set foot on that track. And I've seen the videos for Paul, um, which is capturing you come round. But just see, let's see if you can explain that in a few short words, how that felt, hitting that track and heading towards that finish line. Before you do, John, I actually think, uh, knowing the race, it's almost when you get to Robbie, Robbie Point. Point. So it's, it's a last big climb, Robbie right, Point, okay. and you're, you're in Auburn at that point. You're back on tarmac, and there's people around. So that's about two kilometres yeah, out? Yeah. yeah. I think that yeah. was kind of... Is that like the Braveheart car park uh, equivalent? Uh, exactly almost that, like, yeah. 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 You come across yeah. Noan's Bridge, and that was a bit of a... A, a disappointment because the previous years that we've came across No Hands Bridge, there's been like full on raves and parties going on there. And when we got there, we couldn't hear anything. We're like, oh, that's us, we're at the bridge and they've got it lit up. And there was like three people stood there and they were like, evening. And that was it. <laughs> we were like, all right, that was a bit of a disappointment. So then you've got like about a 
three, four mile run along before you climb up to Robbie Point. And you can see Robbie Point for a couple of miles away because it's up on this hill and there's a wee tent with a light in it. And I, I don't know if they've got some sort of disco going on in it or something like that. But you can see it. And at points you're going, that's not getting any closer. And then all of a sudden you get to the foot of the climb and you're like, right, here we go. And I remember when we started climbing up there, I'm like screaming up the trail because I could see another set of lights and like Dane Wolf impressions and all this sort of stuff and cowboy impressions because I was just, I knew that that was pretty much the end of it and I was absolutely elated and we climbed that really well, passed by another couple of foot, I think passed by somebody on the climb and then we got up to Robbie Point and they're like, do you want to end for the aid station? We're like, no, see you later, mate. And then the aid station took there's away. like, at Robbie Point, you hit the, you get to the top of the climb, but then there's this tarmac climb and like, I don't know, it depends how hard you've obviously ran it at that point in time, but when you look at that tarmac climb, it sometimes can be like a bit of a mountain. And I remember just getting there and seeing like another couple of runners about 200 metres in front of us, and I was like, right, we're just, I'm pretty sure we, we ran pretty much all of that, didn't we? We did, yeah. yeah. Ran that, all of that, passed by, you ought to have seen this guy's face when I passed by him, he honestly thought I'd taken a shit in his lap. <laughs> he was absolutely disgusted because <laughs> we were running up that hill. And then we got to the top of that, and then you can start, see when she got to the top of that hill, I knew it was all downhill, and that, that was the kind of point in time where Paul starts playing the theme tune to Top Gun to me <laughs> and the hairs in the back of the neck are all standing up and all that. And uh, oh, it was just absolutely... And I think that was probably the happiest and most elated point was at that point where it was just me and Paul and we had achieved what we'd set out today. And I had said to Paul maybe a couple of months, two, three months before we went out to Western States because of the disappointment that I personally had experienced in Paul's last Western States and not being able to get to run with him, I just said to him that I wanted this experience to be our fairy tale ending in Western States. And I think at that point where we got to the top of that tarmac hill, the cops are sat there, we're all barricaded off, the young team are out at like two, three o'clock in the morning going absolutely ape shit in the street and Paul's playing fucking top gun music to me. I was just like, life could not be any better right now. We then ran all the way down the hill at the track and then at that point Paul started filming it and then you've got the people for the race that are live streaming it filming you and I when you kinda uh, you got to the track and you're running under the floodlights. It's just, I've watched hundreds of runners do that. I've watched the stuff on the live streams. And as soon as I hit the track, I just knew that Sam and Max would have been sitting watching back home and all the people that's been sending such positive and supportive messages and all that sort of stuff, I knew they would all be glued to it, watching it as well, cheering us on. And I, it was say, uh, it was amazing, absolutely amazing. I, I can listen. I, I don't need to dive any deeper. I can hear it in your voice. I can I can hear the emotion. Um, I guess a lifetime achievement there done, and it was incredible to see you finish. Um, it was brilliant to then catch up with your interview. Um, 
which we don't need to go into more detail here. It's available on all your streaming platforms. And uh, what I was really interested in, though, was as you finished, Paul, you come over and you guys embrace and there's like this moment you've shared. But what I was really interested in is, is John, that's your Western States experience with Paul. And previously, Paul, it was your Western States experiences with John. So your roles are reversed. Paul, how does this rank for you as a Western States experience, having seen John overcome the, the three, four years of challenge to put in a performance like that and for you to have a ringside seat for it? It was pretty spectacular, James. For me, to be honest, it was like, I remember at one point, I think it was after Greengate, so you're into the last like 15, 16 miles or something, and it's hard, that bit, it's kind of up and down, you're in the dark at that point, and you know what he's feeling I, I know what it feels like you just want to get to the next stage station you just want to get to the next stage station and I remember having a conversation with John just saying like there's nowhere else I would rather be right now in the world and then just running with my best mate and um, like finishing that story we we John and I's friendship came through the West Highland Race. that's when we first really connected um, I'd coached him before that um, but that's where our friendship developed and then John had kind of supported me all this time at Western States. Um, and then it felt like we'd just completed the circle. Finally, John was getting to do the thing that he had dreamt about. And for me to be there with him by his side on the last 40 miles is pretty special. And actually, it made me think about the West Highland Way race and stuff. And actually, being able to pace someone in a race is quite a special experience. Um, and Because there's not many races you can go and do that. But you feel like... It, it felt like a team effort albeit John obviously has run you know a huge distance more than I had done but you felt like you'd contributed something to that and so it feels like a team achievement when when he crossed the line it wasn't like I didn't I didn't once think about oh it's a shame I'm not running across a finish line or something it was just like oh my god we've done it this is amazing and I was just so happy for him because I know how much this had meant to him and how much work had gone into it as as his coach as well as his friend and I know what had been invested in in this event um, yeah and it was pretty special and then actually like he just sat down on the AstroTurf or whatever like literally 30 seconds after he finished and then somebody came up and said the live the live stream's going mad with uh, people from Scotland here or whatever there's any chance you can come and do an interview John's face was like oh, I don't know if I really want to do this but yeah okay I'll come and do it um, and it was really it was really nice for Melanie and I to we, we stood obviously and watched them do the interview and it was just it was just pure John. He was just really emotional, really open and honest about everything. So um, it was really rewarding for both of us to see that, considering what we'd put in uh, that day to to help him help him get there to the finish line. John, I guess I've had the privilege of listening to two of you talking, and there's a bond, there's a clear bond and a mutual respect but also a lifetime of memories that will only ever be between the two of you um, because those little moments, you can't go through them all. The stones kicked, the bridges crossed, the water traversed. Um, but any closing thoughts on the race you would like to share with people who are listening, um, what it's meant to you um, and what they should do in pursuit of something that might seem as if it's been beyond them, but actually you can go out and get anything you want if you're willing to maybe change the mindset and put the work in. I think, I think that's... It. just what you went and said there James is that if you want something enough then you're going to have to be willing to put in 
the work, you're going to have to be honest with yourself. It's something that I probably was, I don't know if I was too critical of myself or if I wasn't being honest with myself or I really don't know, but I'm glad that I spent the time trying to figure it out. I'm glad that I kept putting in the entries for these 100 mile races. I'm glad that I've been able to figure it out. And I mean, it's taken me a long time. It's cost a hell of a lot of money, but every single penny and every single minute spent on it has been absolutely worth it because it's like you say, it's, I'm not going to be worrying about what anything costs in terms of time, in terms of money or time when you're sitting there at 60, 70 years of age and you're reminiscing about the cool shit that you've done in your life. You're going to be talking about these things, these memories and these experiences and the people that you chose to experience them with. And I'm quite fortunate that me and Paul have got to experience a lot of this cool shit in the past five, six years and just hope that that's how it continues. It doesn't necessarily need to be in races, but I just hope that we keep this kind of adventurous spirit and enjoy exploring new things and challenging ourselves. Like I say, it doesn't necessarily need to be racing. I, I, I've not even made my mind up whether I'll do another race again because it kind of almost feels like I've completed running after finishing most of the states, and I don't actually, like, I can't think of anything that's ever going to be able to live up to Western states. However, at least I have got one ticket for next year's entry, so. (laughs) 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 Uh, Well, John, as you know, if you um, want to come and run the Antonine Trail Race and have a similar experience, give us a shout. Um, Actually, I think that is a tremendously brilliant point to finish on there, what you've just said there, because what I took away from that, what I, I wrote down as you were saying that, is, is prioritise thoughts and feelings over things and stuff, because that's what you'll take to your grave with you, right? And um, and, and the way you've talked about the emotion, the depth of um, commitment that you've had to each other and also you've had to this particular event is actually left me with a lot to ponder as well about my next event, John, and I'm, I'm really grateful for you taking the time to talk about it. Um, I guess, Paul, any closing thoughts from you you'd like to share? Uh, no, um, just something I heard the other day um, about we have the capacity to choose our own regrets, right? And it sounds a bit odd and uh, it doesn't quite work or whatever, but that's kind of, I think, how it comes across to me. It's like... Um, John and I, as a friendship, we could regret times that we weren't out getting drunk and doing all the kind of normal stuff that guys maybe do because we've sacrificed stuff. So you could say that we've chosen to do that for those moments because those ones that we've had at Western States and West Highland Way and my Western States and all that kind of stuff, those are the ones that really mean something, you know, and, and it's been a huge amount of work to to have the opportunity to have those moments and you have to sacrifice a lot in this sport if you want to do well and you want to run 100 mile races and you have to give up a lot and you have to give up some time that you'd be doing fun stuff and whatever for these for the potential to have these moments that are going to last a lifetime and we're, we're really really fortunate and we're both really grateful that we had that opportunity here at western states and it all came together for john and he's tried tried a lot of times to um 
in other races to make it happen and this just felt like this one was absolutely meant to be and everything fell into place so um, I'm pretty lucky and grateful for, for being part of that Wow what a way to finish well I think we'll draw it to a close there John thank you for being such a generous and open guest Paul thank you for being such a generous and open <laughs> guest um, as well which is really good it's, um, it's unusual to have you this side of the microphone um, it's been brilliant to hear I'm sure our listeners will take a lot from it so we'll draw it to a close there so you've been listening to the Pylon Ultra Podcast I've been James Stewart I'm Paul Giblin I'm John Conley goodbye <laughs> John you can give the boom to out us fuck yeah <laughs> <laughs> edit well that was a great conversation thanks so much for listening before you go on your way and on to another podcast episode just a couple of things from me the first being our new Run With Pylon events our very first one day event is happening on the 13th of August in Aviemore and we'll be focusing on endurance and how to race better so that we can help more people have amazing race experiences like John described James and Debbie Kinsani will be leading the day and between them they have huge experience doing long ultras and running looped courses so if you've got a 6, 12 or 24 hour race coming up like Glen Moore or a track race or you're looking to take on longer distances this would be a great day for you we'll do some looped running we'll learn some stuff out on the trail and also in the classroom over lunch you can find out more at pylonultra.com slash run dash with dash pylon. Uh, we have a few places left and when we are full, we are full. That will be the event. Uh, finally, just a short thing. I mentioned earlier in the podcast about choosing your regrets, which is just looking at making sure you're working towards the things that really matter to you just from a different angle. It leads on to something I heard this week from a doctor who had spoken to many, many patients in end-of-life situations. And do you know what the biggest regret was? It wasn't about working harder, doing more or chasing success. What most people say was, I regret not allowing myself to be happy. It really struck a chord with me and it really should for you too. We often don't allow ourselves to be happy. We're trained to always want more, for everything to be scarce, time, money, friendships, good times. But our biggest block when it comes to happiness is ourselves. Hope you have a great day. Take a few minutes just to be in a moment. Let some happiness exist and we'll speak to you soon. Cheers. Cheers.